0: The oil industry, on the one hand, represents so much hope and aspiration, but on the other hand, it also represents a tremendous threat to a whole s- slate of incumbents, and so they're not, you know, going to just give up their business models, we call it the utilities, the fossil fuel industry in general, and so this is the fight that ultimately results in an environment or a an industry that ultimately dominates the electricity production in the world.
1: This is the Solar Disruption Theory. Welcome back to another episode of the Solar Disruption Theory. I'm your host. My name is Chad Towner. With me to my side, we've got Brett Bushy, the CEO. Thanks for joining, Brett. Thank you for having me. And uh, today we've got a very special guest. His name is Philip Shen. He's an award winning analyst for Roth Capital. Before we get into all of his accolades and the reason why we're so excited to have him here, first and foremost, we need to go over there are some disclosures. Um, They are, if you're watching this on YouTube, they're on the screen. If you are listening to this, please read uh, on any podcast, please read the disclosure in the descriptions below. Um, He works for a company that provides analysis for publicly traded companies. We want to make sure that we have that covered. Uh, off the bat and and philip one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on is because personally and I know at our company we've really started to gravitate toward the the content that you produce and the study and the analysis that you provide um, I'm a huge fan of everything that you write we consume it we talk about it internally so uh, above all just thank you for coming how you doing
0: doing great thanks for having me Chad
1: you look you look uh, a lot more professional than than Brett and I do so I think I feel like I'm a little underdressed, but uh, you look sharp.
0: I didn't get the memo. So <laughs> anyway, great to be here.
2: We, for, we, for coming down here, we're going to get you a gift card for Lululemon.
1: Yeah,
0: there you go. thank you. <laughs> all right.
1: Well, you look sharp. You look great. And you are a an analyst and you focus on solar, the renewable energies market. But before all of that, you you, you got your education at, at Brown University and then you went and got your master's in business administration at Stanford I mean with that pedigree you could you could do anything you could do study any field how did you get into solar and renewable energy
0: years ago uh, after business school uh, I went into technology and I had a computer science background um, and I did a a little buyout of a company as well in the back office services for uh credit cards and i just found that uh uh I didn't have a passion for those industries in the way that um that i did for solar so i i took a year off and uh kind of reflected on what what problems do i want to solve out there in the world and solar really hit the map and uh my radar and and really became my focus. And this was back in 2000, uh, maybe 2005, 2006. I realized I wanted to commit the balance of my career to the industry. So that's what got me interested in the industry. I wanted to be involved in the climate change fight. Uh, From then on, I I decided, hey, I wanted to do it with uh, the financial services industry. And uh, here I am. So
1: 2005, what was the solar landscape like? Because I I feel like I'm somewhat of a solar veteran having gotten into solar in, in 2012. The, the industry is so young. But 2005, I mean, that's, that's, that's before a lot of companies started. So what was the landscape of the solar industry like back
0: then? So in 2005, I was on the outside looking in, right? So it took a while to kind of get into the industry. But uh, around that time, it was the beginning of when um, the solar, comp- solar module companies were starting to go public. Uh, maybe two thousand that time frame and so uh it was uh in a time where the industry was filled with hope and you know aspirations of where and how big the companies and the industries could go and um it was really early and i wasn't even fully in it uh, then that's when i decided to get into it and then it took a while just to be able to break in uh because you know whenever you break into an industry you want to have some experience and you know, at some point you just have to bootstrap and, and make it happen.
1: Yeah, no, and, and a lot, as we know, has happened since then, right? I'm Brett, we've heard of your episode a, a few weeks ago, similar kind of, you know, you took a look, a step back and said, I want to, I want to get involved in an industry where I can be proud of what I do. And so that, that kind of sounded pretty similar the way, the way you joined solar as well.
2: Yes, but there's a big difference because he was in a decade earlier. <laughs> and I have to ask you, like, how did you even have faith or hope that it would work? Because back then, it's got to be just environmentalists and doomsday preppers because the cost of solar, all right? I mean, the cost of modules are probably more back then than what it cost to get a fully installed system today. It was crazy expensive back then.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, at some point... Um we have to think through where we were going with carbon dioxide and climate change. And I had this feeling that it wasn't going to stop and and we were going to continue to have um, the need to uh, address that problem with renewables. Now, to serve and address climate change, you really need um, a variety of solutions. And solar and renewables is just one part of it, but I do think it's an important part. And so to answer your question, Brett, you know, it just was uh, something that I knew in um, my gut that that was the right thing for me to be a part of. And uh, over my career and in my time, I've realized some of those, sometimes the best decisions are made with a gut feeling that feels right. Like, it, and so it just felt right for me and for to be in that industry and to serve the industry in that way.
2: Did you see though the economies of scale? Like, could you've ever dreamed that the cost of modules and the cost of the installation would come down so much over the last 17 years. Like that's the thing is because you couldn't create savings for a customer back in 2005 or six or seven or eight or
0: nine. Right. So there was a leap of faith there and just a recognition that, you know, at some point, you know, the cost of uh, solar would come down and because it was, you know, Silicon and, Uh, we don't, you know, it's not Moore's law per se. There is a steady cost structure reduction, and you could start to see the beginnings of that. And if you extrapolated out, uh, you could get to some numbers that became more appealing. And uh, look at where we are now. I mean, modules, I mean, 30 cents, 40 cents, 50, it depends on utility scale versus residential. But, you know, we're in this 30 to 50 cent per watt um, price level versus $5, $10. $5, $10. I mean, it is uh, staggering to see how much the industry's uh, improved. And frankly, we're at that point now where, I mean, in spite of, and we do have a number of substantial uh, incentives out there with the Inflation Reduction Act. But even without that, that, there is natural economic demand for solar.
2: One other question is you know, the one seminal event for me was um, I had a lot of crazy events happened in my life that kind of led me to solar, but it really triggered me was watching an inconvenient truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a lifelong Republican. And I remember going, I'm not really going to spend 90 minutes of my life listening to Al Gore talk about climate change, but it truly changed my life. And when I saw the numbers and I'm um, like, this is what I was meant to do. Everything in my business career had led me to this point To make an investment into solar. And that's what I did. And I immediately hired a consultant and started looking for an EPC. And that was back in the first quarter of 2015. I just, the faith that you had 10 years earlier is amazing because I didn't see it till 2015.
0: Yeah. uh, And an inconvenient truth came out earlier than that. Yes. uh, And it's much earlier than that. And I do, you know, uh, I I wanna say six or seven. Yeah, I wanna say six or seven. and, And that, was also an inspirational film for me as well uh so you know at that time you know that really just crystallized a lot of what um people were talking about and ultimately galvanized a lot of uh, energy and um and hope around uh what the potential solutions could be
2: that's so cool to hear that story because i that it had the same impact on me
0: mm.
1: what a convenient coincidence that's crazy <laughs> All right. So, talking about module supply and cost, you mentioned, you know, how they used to be so much higher than they've come down significantly over the past year. They've gone back up, obviously not to the prices that they used to be, but it's had a major disruption in the industry. Um, the IRA has come out and and will have its impact on module supply and and what manufacturers do. What would you say the outlook uh, looks like for? Modules in general, pricing, capacity, quantity, uh, globally.
0: So the last word you use there changes it it significantly. Exactly. Changes the. the Let's start with in the United States. (laughs) So okay. So we have. We'll start with the U.S. and then actually, it might be better to start with uh, the global perspective uh, because um, there are a lot of forces out there that are potentially going to knock it on the door for the US. Um, So globally, uh, we're looking at um, pricing uh, starting to decline. Uh, We're seeing a substantial amount of polysilicon capacity come online. And I think um, pricing should start to decline a little bit in Q1 of next year, Q2 even, but really Q4, we're going to start to see uh, a bigger drop in polysilicon pricing. And so I can quantify that.
2: Yeah, and could you explain the process all right so how does polysilicon give me the steps of what it takes to become a module
0: sure uh so the absolute raw material is quartzite uh, you refine that into something called uh, metallurgical grade silicon so that's 98.5 percent pure silicon uh, then you take that as a raw input and you manufacture and and really you put it through a chemical process that refines that 98.5 percent silicon to uh 99 point and then seven to nine more nines percentage pure silicon you take that so it, that uh, you get solar grade polysilicon and if you want you can also like semiconductor grade polysilicon is typically what's called 10 or 11 ends that means 10 or 11 nines and then solar grade is called seven to historically seven to ten seven to nine, but then with the transition to uh, the newer technology called n-type, we're using p-type technology now, n-type yeah. technology likely requires the higher purity silicon. So then you take that silicon and basically you have um, all these silicon rocks, right? So chunks of poly that uh, have been um, harvested from this furnace, uh, they take that and then they remelt it all. And and they create an ingot. An ingot is uh, just a um, imagine a, a rocket. You know, so it's uh, it looks. So you have uh, uh, another furnace. Uh, you have a seed of purity, uh, a pure silicon, and so they melt the raw silicon around that, and then they pull it, and then it becomes this rocket of material, like a cylinder. A cylinder, yep. And then um, you take that, and then you slice it into wafers. Uh, and then from there, you take the wafers and you dope it with chemicals and you add some, uh, silver paste for fingers, uh, to transfer the electrons. And then you take the cells, uh, and so you get the solar cell from when you dope the chemicals. And then you take that cell and you put it into a module that has called 60 to, you know, 65 cells. And that's how you get the module.
1: Nine, seven to nine decimal points. Mm-hmm. That's incredible.
2: That sounds pretty pure to me. (laughs) Pure would be the right word. But did you catch that it's not pure enough for semiconductors? All right. That's what's crazy. You have to go out even further. So, um, you know, it's fascinating. So, back to the poly. Sure. I kind of jumped in and interrupted you, but I wanted everybody to really understand the process. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, everybody got everybody's IQ level went up by at least five points after listening to you, Philip. Just knowledge level. Yep. Yes.
0: So, Uh, Your original question was, what's going to happen with the polysilicon pricing? And so polysilicon pricing has been relatively elevated in the past uh, year, year and a half. And uh, we're going to see a decline, I believe, uh, starting in Q3 and Q4 um, in a more substantial way. And so from a quantification level standpoint, we might go from something close to $40 a kilogram uh, down to, call it... uh, uh, 20 to $25 a kilogram in Q4. And, uh, what does that translate into in terms of cents per watt? Let me see if I have that right. If you at $40, um, I think it's, uh, what is that? 30, 40,
2: it's about seven or eight cents seven, a watt.
0: Yeah, seven or eight cents a watt. Seven or eight cents. And we're probably going to get down to call it two to four cents a watt.
2: Yeah. And the poly cost is about 40% of the what the module is at today's pricing. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, when you look at it, but I'm I'm factoring tariffs. I'm talking about residential pricing.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, so from a global standpoint, getting back to your question, yeah. Chad, you know, this is the bottleneck in the industry that's keeping pricing of modules higher because we have elevated supply of uh wafers and cell capacity wafer and cell capacity uh globally and so and they've been operating at between you know 50 to 80% utilization 90 depends on what tier of company you're at uh and so as poly comes down the module prices should come down now here in the US coming to the other part of your question you know we probably won't see that kind of a substantial drop in pricing um in modules uh, because we have a protectionist environment now with a number of tariffs and um, uh, incentives also to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. Inside the United States, you're saying
1: that that module pricing likely won't come down as drastically as it will in other countries because we have things like the tariffs and then the oxen petition or the potential threat of something like that where we're where we're charging tariffs on countries that are manufacturing panels. Um, But doesn't that also get offset by the Inflation Reduction Act and the potential for people to earn back some of those costs through other credits? How do they all kind of play together to come up to this result in the United States?
0: Yeah, so right now, the reality is we don't have that much manufacturing capacity here. So um, we have... um, um, maybe two and a half gigawatts of module capacity for crystalline silicon, uh, for, uh, thin film, um, under first solar, we probably have close to six to going on to nine gigawatts of production, but that's all for utility scale. So that's probably much less relevant for your audience here. Um, as it relates to, um, the incentives, we have a nice rich incentive package that was passed under the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, that is going to take time to bring capacity online. So we are tracking how much capacity is coming online, when that capacity is coming online. um, And my guess is, you know, there's aspirationally as much as 25 gigawatts of crystalline silicon cell capacity that that's one to get online by 2025 but with all these delays for transformers that are required for the solar cell uh, fabs we probably will get a fraction of that maybe 60 70%. So it takes time to ramp that up. Now on the flip side, you know, we don't have this production, right? For 22, 23, much of 24, you know, we'll start to see some production ramp, but not that much. Um, On the flip side we have a tremendous number of uh tariffs that are in place um the section 201 the section 301 in 2012 we had a uh an anti-dumping countervailing duty case uh we have a recent new potential tariff chad that you were referring to uh there was a petition filed by a company called oxen to uh that would allege that uh there, were, um, circ- there was circumvention of the 2012 anti-dumping, countervailing duties um, from companies in China. And so we just saw the preliminary determination there uh, come up uh, in Oxen's favor. The bottom line here is uh, we haven't even quantified what all that means and so forth. But there's a lot of barriers to try to bring manufacturing back in the U.S. But barriers alone are, are not enough. With the Inflation Reduction Act uh, passed uh, by the Biden administration, we can now start to see some ramp up. But we have this bridge of two to two-ish years, two and a half years that need to that we need to see get us there. And as a result of all that, in spite of the global um, capacity ramping up of poly and, and oversupply and the other segments of this module manufacturing uh, value chain, um, we will likely have. Uh, Higher prices here in the US for the foreseeable future. Yeah.
1: And Brett, you've been talking about this anti circumvent Is that a term that people are going to start using or hearing a lot more? Is anti-circ, is this a is this a real threat to supply chain and, and pricing overall for us?
2: Yes, it, it is. But, you know, depending on I'd love to hear Phillips take. And, you know, just recently we just had uh, the preliminary results. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard some people say it's positive. Some people say it's negative. Some people are not really sure. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your take on what just happened from an anti-CIRC perspective.
0: So the Department of Commerce um, issued their preliminary determination uh, finding uh, circumvention of the 2012 anti-dumping and countervailing duty tariffs. Uh, There were four companies named specifically that were in... uh, that were deemed to be circumventing. Um, they were Trina, Vina, and two others I can't think of right now. I think New, nope, so two others. And then there are four that were deemed not to be circumventing. Uh, Jenko, um, New East, East Boviet, and uh, there was a fourth one. Which one was it? Um, I can't think of it right now,
2: and so everybody knows Vina yeah. is Longi. Yes. Vina is the manufacturing plant. I believe it's in Vietnam, but that is Longi. a lot of people go, I thought Longi was kind of the target. Vina solar is Longi. So just so the fourth knows. one, I just
0: remembered it's Hanwa.. Okay. Okay. So yes. the reason why some people are saying it's not as bad as expected is because we got two major actually three major players uh, that basically have an exemption. And so Janko has upwards of seven to maybe 10 gigawatts of capacity. Uh, Hanwha has a substantial amount of capacity. Uh, Boviet likewise. And so that's the, the good news. Uh, the bad news in the, uh, preliminary determination and we're not final yet. And there's some next steps we can talk about as well. Um, but, um, the bad news is anybody who's not covered by this, but, you know, a non-respondent uh, manufacturer, um, uh, meaning those who were not a part of these eight companies, uh, either they are subjected to the their tariffs, assuming that they were identified specifically for that company from the two thousand and twelve anti-dump ADCVD, or they are subjected to a two hundred fifty-four percent tariff. And either so, one's
2: catastrophic.
0: It's the latter because most of those companies were probably not around during 2012. And so most of the rest of the industry is subjected to that to 54%. So that's why I think some people are saying it's good and some people are saying it's not as bad. But that is only or
2: manufacturers bad. in the four countries that have been focused on. Everything outside of that is okay, correct?
0: That's right. And if you make a wafer outside of China, and you can show that it doesn't come from China uh, – Then you are also out of this case as well.
2: Yes. And what are those four countries, just so everybody knows that all of our listeners know?
0: Uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and uh, Thailand.
2: Got it. So, and that's really, really important is that, you know, we have tried to focus on companies outside of those four countries for this very reason. Mm -hmm. This has been incredibly disruptive. And a lot of people just want to know, like, and, and, and I do want to know, so as soon as these macro events happened, we saw increases of panels go up by 20, 30, 40% in literally like a day or 48 hours. But yet we get the two-year moratorium mm-hmm. from the administration and nothing happened. There was no decrease. We didn't get the same decrease and the prices still stayed up here. We're starting to see a little softening, but everybody wants to know when our panel pricing going to come down? Because a lot, that was huge relief that the administration did, but you just didn't see it go down as much as we all would have liked.
0: So like you, I'm starting to hear and see the potential for some module price decreases in residential solar um, starting next year. Uh, You know, just before I came up here to visit you guys, I met with a distributor. um, And, you know, they're talking about how there's just a little bit of too much inventory. Uh, We're not at that point yet where uh, the prices are coming down substantially. But you combine that situation with a softening of demand as a result of the rising rate environment that we've seen. Uh, There are a lot of installers out there that only have sold loans and have not had a lease product uh, or much cash sales to lean on. Um, and as a result, you know, after the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, price increase coming from the big four uh, loan companies, Mosaic, uh, Good Leap actually one Mosaic, uh, Sunlight and Fifth Third with Dividend um, now. It's starting to impact the way the sales people are able to sell uh, and and it's slowing things down. So between that softening of demand which I have been writing about for the past month or so in Q1 and Q2 of next year, and it's still um, uh, to for the jury to decide what is it what kind of growth do we see in Q1 and two for the industry? are we up 10%? Are we down 10%? You know keep in mind the original expectation for demand uh for all of 23 was call 25 30 plus percent it was still up until about september right after spi is when things started to kind of slow down and so with that brett uh of that demand starting to decrease and then maybe some of the supply building up my guess is we may get some modest uh module price relief
2: yeah Three months ago, I was 30 plus percent in 2023. Take it to the bank. Mm -hmm. And uh, the velocity of the increase in capital costs, a lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people go, oh, back in the 70s or 80s, we had higher interest rates than today. But that took over a long period of time. It never happened this fast. And it has created all kinds of challenges in the marketplace. I mean, think about it. A lot of times, if you're a loan company, you're keeping them on your warehouse line, your balance sheet, then you've got to package them up and turn around and sell them. The increases have happened so fast, you almost would have to sell them at a loss. And I've never seen anything like that. We've seen the cost of solar go up by 20% in the last 60 days from a capital cost perspective. Now, if you're paying cash, it doesn't affect you. But that is just a fraction of your purchase customers, only 7% of our customers purchase with cash. The other 93% that purchase, um, they do it with a loan. So that is just created major headwinds. And I think people are are just underestimating it. I, you know, I heard, you know, Bodry, the CEO Mm -hmm. of Enphase talking about, like, they haven't seen a decline in demand. Um, It's absolutely going to be Headwinds into 2023. Mm-hmm. And as long as they stay up this high, it's going to be really difficult to create first year cost savings in a lot of states that have grown exponentially, like Texas and Florida, and markets like for us, Arkansas and Idaho, where you're competing against 10, 11, 12, 15 cent power. It's hard when you add a dollar a watt in terms of increased costs. So I think people are really underestimating the impact of it. Um, but I'm very thankful that we're one of those companies that do have a PPA and we've seen a major shift and we've talked about this offline is that we are seeing, um, you know, we're up to 45% of all of our sales are PPAs. Mm -hmm. That was only 18% this summer. Mm -hmm. That is a massive shift in the last 90 days. And I think it could go as high as 50% or maybe even as high as 60%. So, um, you know, you know how I feel about, you know, companies had, you know, Sonova and Sunrun are at a major advantage because of the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, it was shocking. I think it caught everybody off guard. It definitely caught us off, off guard, but it has been helpful to have that option. And if you don't have a PPA option and you are in the sales side of the business, you either need to get one or you will be extinct and that's another big problem that i have in this industry is you should always have both options so many salespeople or ins- installers sell one or the other that is ridiculous all right if a customer literally doesn't have an appetite for the tax credit you should have a ppa you should be asking the customer five questions and decide whether you what, what what's in their best interest is it a PPA or is it a purchase? And now with the Inflation Reduction Act, the economics are so much different, all right? And will continue to be different unless there's any changes in the IRA, which we don't expect that to happen. But as of right now, there's a significant advantage. So if you don't know how to sell a PPA, you need to figure it out real quick.
0: Absolutely. It's, um, you know, the the loan players have been making hay, for a long time. You know, this industry really started and was pioneered by the likes of SolarCity and Sunrun um, a decade ago. And they created this market using leases and PPAs. Uh, but then the loan guys starting in 15, 2015, they just started to whittle away and have become had become the dominant players. And we are in the middle of that inflection point uh, or that inflection Process. And, you know, I, I have heard that uh, complete inversion that you've talked about just now um, before from others as well. So that's kind of what I'm expecting. You know, end of next year, sometime in 2024, we could be majority lease PPA in the industry. And again, to echo what Brett is saying, uh, find that option for yourself. And that's why I think also this um, uh, we're going to see the slowdown in Q1 and 2 because it takes time to adjust and then be able to meet the standards, which frankly are probably higher with the lease and PPA partners like a Sunrun or Sunova, um, than perhaps some of the loan players. And so you have to go through that approval process, change and update your process and procedures, and, and then you can come back online and more aggressively sell the lease. And then this is a behavioral shift as well, because a lot of people have asked, well, shouldn't the rising rate environment also impact leases? The answer is yes, but you have more you have another um, element in the capital stack, uh, which is a tax equity partner to provide capital. So you're not just relying on the consumer's own credit and and ability to um, uh, take on debt,, uh, but you have a tax equity partner there as well. And so and you can typically monetize the uh, investment tax credit with a, a higher fair market value in lease and PPA versus um, what you can do with um, a loan. So there's a little bit more money there. That's just to start. And then as you layer in, after we get the treasury rules out from the IRS uh, around the Inflation Reduction Act starting either March or April of next year, then the lease and PPA guys are gonna be able to layer in even more incentives that uh, lease PPA, um, can use because they use the commercial ITC as opposed to the homeowner, I think, 25D um, ITC. And as a result of that, uh, they have more uh, incentive and, and ultimately subsidy versus uh, the loan. So I know we've touched on a lot of different potential paths we can go down, uh, but the bottom line is there's a big momentum and shift to lease PPA. We're likely going to see a slowdown in momentum in Q1 and q t- two for the overall industry. But eventually the, the industry will figure it out. They'll adapt and adjust and we'll get back to uh, some nice growth in the back. half. And
2: I want to hit on something. I want to try to put it into numbers. So um, I've read before that you believe when all of these stackable, Mm-hmm. Adders, domestic content, energy mm-hmm. communities, and everything like that. Yep. That the overall ITC credit yes. on a PPA will be somewhere between 43 to 45% versus a loan, which mm-hmm. is
0: 30%. I think we can go higher. So that's right. a blended average.
2: Blended average. All right. Yeah. So what do you think the average is going to be? Because that was I read that a month ago
0: from you. Okay. What so what do you think it is today? So for a specific so I'll give you kind of a max of what a system might be. And then we'll have to feather, like blend in what the mix of business might be for a lease uh, company. So um, 30% is the baseline uh, ITC. On top of that, you can get a 10% domestic content adder. So you need to have, uh, I think, uh, 45% of the content needs to be U.S. And so the IRS will give us rules in March or April around how to meet that threshold. And I think it's just the stuff. It's not any of the soft costs. It's just the the
2: equipment. So it's basically mm -hmm. the inverter. You've got the rail, Mm -hmm. maybe BOS, Mm -hmm. and you've got the module. So of that, you need to have a combination of inverters or rail, probably just modules, but it needs to be 45%. And essentially, if you're doing a PPA and you're not using that domestic content adder, you're an idiot. So, everyone's going to do it. All right. So, you're going to get that 10% on pretty much every now, project.
0: Now, there's going to be a trick that Sunrun and Nova use, uh, and that is um, batteries. And so, if you have your solar system plus the battery, uh, the battery contribution can count. And mm-hmm. there is a power, very good point. There is a power wall out there that is US made, and they believe they can count all of it. And so, you know, let's say the typical system is 30 grand uh, solar only, and then you add a battery for 10 grand, that's 40. The battery could be, what, $10,000? and Or oh, we just talked about it. it's 10,000. So that's um, 25%, but that's a big chunk of that overall. Uh, you could probably get
2: up to 30% allocation with the Powerwall. I mean, you can, with labor and everything like that, you're easily talking 12 to
0: $14,000. Yeah. Well, obviously, labor doesn't count in this calculation.
2: I thought it did. It's just equipment.
0: I th- Well, to account for the domestic content, my understanding, and I'm not looking at the I think you're right. code. I think it is just the equipment. So so that's the domestic content adder. So you go from 30% to 40% if you can hit that 45% um, threshold. And event- that's the, the first few years. But that eventually goes up, I believe, to 55% content required. The second um, ITC adder is another 10%. And that's the energy community adder. And so if you're in a um, community that has had a coal mine shut down or maybe a power plant shut down, that's typically one of the qualifications. But there's also some additional uh, language in there that allows you to qualify for this ITC adder if you are in a zip code or some kind of economically defined region that has higher unemployment. Relative to an average that you're able to compare to, I don't know if it's a, a region or the whole state or something like that. But I, what I do know is that um, some companies have said, like a Sunrun, we we think we already qualify. Our existing book of business, as it stands now, might be able to qualify for one third of that. Ten percent. Ten percent. One third of our business may qualify for that ten percent. Ten percent, which.
2: Overall is a blend of three point three cents.
0: Yep, and so so that's uh, that's the energy community adder. So now we've gone from thirty to fifty percent, and then there's the third adder, um, which is a low income type adder. Uh, And so I don't remember all the details of this one, but basically um, you have a choice. You can either go for a ten percent path or a twenty percent path, and so. Uh, there are more. De- there will be more definitions and, and criteria that you have to meet. And again, IRS is going to give us uh, more details in March or April. Uh, but if you go down that 20% path, you can go from 50% now to 70%. So there could be some homes literally with a 70% ITC. And the way the language is written today, the loan companies and the homeowners that are borrowing that money from that loan company and, and buying solar and try, they get a 30% ITC. They cannot get for that. They cannot get that incremental
2: 40%. So if I understand it right, Donald Trump would be eligible for the low income adder. He doesn't make any <laughs> money. Am I correct in that? I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. um, <laughs> well, I don't know. It's a sure answer. <laughs> and, and one of the things I just wanted to say is that like, um, I'm a Republican. I'm obviously not a big Trump fan. But, uh, you know, let's give the administration some credit because I cannot believe we've already seen in the last 60 days, both Enphase and SolarEdge announce manufacturing facilities here in the U.S. And I've never seen the velocity of really creating manufacturing jobs here in the U.S. And I believe you're not only going to see module manufacturing, inverter manufacturing. I think you're going to see cell manufacturing, wafers, and even potentially polysilicon. And what gets me really excited is that what made America the economic powerhouse was the Industrial <coughs> Revolution. And I think we have a second chance to really recreate our American economy and become incredibly strong again, because so much of that and so many of those jobs are shipped out to Southeast Asia and other parts of the country. And this, I think people are underestimating renewable energy. You even talked about it today, like renewable energy is the answer, but it's not the only answer. But I mean, when you pair it with hydro and wind, I mean, it can be a 100% solution. Five years ago, a lot of people didn't believe that. And that's what gets really, really exciting. And people like need to be really proud of being in this industry. And you're somebody that had faith from 2005. And to see now this manufacturing renaissance around what I believe is arguably the industry that can control the world economy over the next hundred years. It is the new oil. I am convinced of it. But yet so many people don't see it that way yet. But they will.
0: I hundred percent agree with you. I was going to use that phrase as well. Solar is the new oil, and part of the reason why we are um, having we have these incentives here is to make sure that as a country we capitalize on that and uh, establish and reestablish the the dominance that uh, the U.S. once had.
2: All right. So I want to break that down for all of our listeners. All right. So that means a PPA should be able to, on average. Some people are going to get as much as 70%. And when you add the inverters, you can get to as high as 73%, the way I do the math. Mm-hmm. All right. But that's not going to be on every project. They're going to have a blended, you know, group of projects. I believe it's going to be about 45%. I think you're right in the same area about 45%. But how much does 15% mean? means when you're selling at an average gross price of $4.50, that's 68 cents a watt Mm -hmm. difference between PPAs and loans. Mm -hmm. I have another question. How did this happen? How could loans and in companies be at such a disadvantage to PPAs? I've had this question asked to me a lot. I don't know the answer.
0: Do you know? I don't know the actual answer, but I have a guess. And that is um, the lease and PPA guys, Sunrun, Sanova, have uh, and spend a lot of money in lobbying. Uh, they're very active with, uh, with um, SIA and ACP in DC. And, uh, uh, and my sense is the loan guys may just not have um spent as much time or money or effort to be in DC and to develop those relationships and ultimately spend millions of dollars. I mean, we should think about how much Sunrun and Snova and those guys have spent. I mean it's millions of dollars annually and and a lot of people have free ridden that, you know, and uh, and so everybody benefited from that 30%, but uh conveniently the solar loan ITC is not able to claim uh, those ITC adders. And, you know, there is an effort to maybe try to fix that. And we've written about that, I think. Um, uh, We'll just have to see how successful that is uh, come March and April. Uh, So, they, you know, the industry has uh, three, four months left to try to see if that can change.
1: Such a crazy industry. We've got panels going up and then down we've got tariffs we've got all these global supply chain issues and then internally we've got a new bill that gets passed that makes solar the most attractive business for the next at least decade right but then at the same time it's uh in the middle of the largest increase of interest rates that this economy has ever seen um i think a lot of that i i, I start to wonder like what would our what would things look like right now if it wasn't for the Inflation Reduction Act? Because loans are getting killed right now with the interest rates. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness that we have the PPA, Mm -hmm. right? And a lease product that can take advantage of those things. And so just staying level with what they were at before from a pricing standpoint to us is a huge win because we just see dealer fees or interest rates just keep going up on, on purchases. And so- I I don't know that we would to your point earlier about supply and demand we would have a lot less customers today we'd be looking at going into 2023 with a major decline in customers and sales volume if they didn't have this outlet that is that is the PPA and so we'll see we'll see what happens with uh if there's going to be any changes or new guidance on the Inflation Reduction Act such a wild uh business and we are going to pick the rest of this up on a future episode, because there's so much more that we want to get into. Hopefully you guys can um, do a little bit more research and dig into everything that Philip is talking about. One last question before we we cut is, if you knew 15 years ago or 17 years ago when you got into the solar industry, that these are the types of ups and downs that we'd be experiencing. I mean, the most unpredictable business there is, Do you still feel like you made the right choice? Are you glad you dove into solar?
0: 100%. This is a dynamic and interesting and uh, evolving industry. Um, It's to be expected that uh, you have a lot of these challenges because the solar industry, on the one hand, represents so much hope and aspiration. But on the other hand, it also represents a tremendous threat to a whole s- slate of incumbents and so they're not you know going to just give up their business models call it the utilities, the fossil fuel industry in general and so this is the fight that ultimately results in an environment or a an industry that ultimately dominates the electricity production in the world.
1: well thank you uh, for joining that fight Philip and we'll pick this up on the next episode. thank you guys for joining.